Well, as you know, this is the 500th anniversary year of the launching of what we call the Protestant Reformation. Now, the Protestant Reformation has lost a little bit bit of its oomph in recent years with documents like uh, the Evangelicals and Catholics Together, ECT, with uh, the uh, dumbing down of the divide on what really separated Protestantism and Catholicism during Luther's time, followed by Calvin and Zwingli and underlined by the Puritans and the Church of Scotland. But what's easy to miss is the word inherent in the term Protestant. What's the basic term in that designation Protestant? It's a, it's a protest. At the heart of the protest of the Protestant Reformation was a protest that the trajectory of the Roman Catholic Church at the time of its launching and Luther from Wittenberg nailing those 95 theses is to protest that What was being deemed as Christianity was no longer biblical, but man-centered. No longer defined by what the Word of God says is Christianity, but beginning to be defined by man-centered, man-ideas, predominantly in the Catholic magisterium, to which they would look to popes and councils and the magisterium, One of the main things that was attempted during this time, this is review, is to keep the word of God out of the lingua franc, out of the language of the people so that they could continue to say anything that they wanted and proffer any theology that they would like by keeping the the theological instruction in Latin. That led the reformers to codify or systematize the pillars of what they believed and what we've come to know as the five solas or the word Latin, the Latin word for alone. Sola fide, we believe we're saved by faith alone. In other words, it's only belief, not our works. Sola gratia, which is grace alone, meaning only God can grant favor by his own uh, desire, by his own prerogative. Sola Scriptura, which means that our authority is in Scripture alone. And Solus Christus, meaning the merit of our righteousness comes from who alone? Christ alone. That brings us to our last of these solas, and it's the one that has three words. Soli Deo Gloria, alone to God be glory. Now, to get us started tonight, I want to remind you of something that you're all very familiar with if you've had little children in your home or if you've been around little children. And if you don't know this, let me encourage you to work in the four-year-olds this week, and you'll find this out. One of the inevitable questions that maturing children all come to is to ask the simple question, why? You all knew that, didn't you? Why? 
Why are things the way they are, Mom? Why do I need to obey and comply, Dad? Why is God like He is? And why are we like we are? And why, 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 why? Well, in 1647 and in 1648, theologians in Great Britain assembled together to write a common theological statement, a common confession that would be turned into a catechism, a way of teaching little ones the answers to the question theologically, why? It was known as the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Catechism. I cannot recommend the study uh, of this work highly enough. Many of you have the shorter version. Some of you are nodding. The shorter version of the Westminster Catechism. It's a great series of questions and answers that was intended to be memorized. And really, if you memorize the shorter confession, it's not short, you will have a systematic theology memorized and accessible to answer almost any theological question that can be composed with the question, why? Now, what's most interesting for our study tonight is the first and primary question of the confession. You've probably all used it in your home with little ones. I'm sure you know it and you've memorized it. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. You know John Piper's little twist on that that we are to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. I like that little addition. Is man's chief end to glorify God? I mean, the Westminster divines said it was. What, what do you think? What do you say? Is that your chief end? I mean, let's draw back from that statement. That's a bold question. What is the chief and highest end of man? What is your purpose in life, your purpose existing, your purpose on this planet, the purpose for which you live and the purpose for which you might dare even die? Is there a central focus, a core value that drives anything and everything you do and think? The Westminster divines thought so. And I think they're right, that it is to understand, glorify, honor, magnify, make much of, orient your life around God. Now, we've adopted a version of that in our mission statement. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. See if you can hear remnants of that in our mission statement. We exist to magnify God and spread a passion for His glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ, his son, above all else in every dimension of life as regulated by the word of God. It's this passion for the glory of God that was at the center of the Reformation. And honestly, it was the passion for the glory of God, the majesty of God, the greatness of God that was at the core of that weekend retreat where we spent two days as a group of elders saying, why are we existing at Mission Road Bible Church? I know mission statements can be a, a part of corporations, part of athletic uh, teams, but the mission statement for us really was, was a great way for us to just say, why are we here? What is our chief end? And the centerpiece of that is to spread a passion for His glory, to glorify and magnify God. Now, that was the centerpiece of the Reformation as well. And it can be seen, really, that soli deo gloria is the glue that holds all of these other solas together. 
As a doctrinal conviction, soli deo gloria means that everything that is done is to be done, should be done, is to be aimed at bringing magnification, amplification, putting a loudspeaker on and pointer toward the glory of God, specifically to the exclusion of man's self-glorification and pride. It goes to the heart of every Christian's motive to pull out of us and to implore us to do everything and anything for God and for His glory. As Jesus said, especially at the denial of self. Let's break this down a little bit more. Why was this so important during the Reformation time, during the protest that created Protestantism? I think the reason is that such of the core of the Reformation was aimed at erasing the distinction that the Roman Catholic Church had made between the secular and the sacred. Now, I want to break that down a little bit more for you. The idea was there were secular things, work, going to work, employment, uh, planting uh, gardens, eating. There was, there was things that happened in the secular world and there were things that happened inside the church that were sacred. The sacred was separate then from the secular. I think this is ultimately the uh, motive and the, the reason that you had the development of monasteries and monks and nunneries. They were separated into the sacred away from the secular. So when you're looking at the idea of soli deo gloria, one of the things that's at the heart of this is that the reformers said, no, there's, there should be never, ever, 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 ever a distinction between that which is secular and that which is sacred because, drum roll, everything is sacred to God. There's no area, no category, no time, no, no venture that any believer ought to engage in wherein the glory of God doesn't come to bear. Living for the glory of God was relegated to the super spiritual, the monks, the priests, the, the upper elite, the, the popes, rather than for every person who claimed the name of Christ. Now, I want to step back a little bit, and, and let me tell you what we're going to do now. This is, the method is going to be very different, and, and the method came from my own study of this. I began studying these the historical expressions of, of soli deo gloria and the biblical understanding of, of God's glory and began to study and study and study, and I just felt a tsunami and an avalanche of, of God's glory. So what we're going to do is, is we're going to have just basically a little Bible study tonight. We're going to flip around us in different passages. I want you to see these in your Bible. I want you to own them, underline them, highlight them, mark them for study later, and we're going to dive in. Before we get into that, we need to define the term glory. Now, glory is, um, is easy and difficult at the same time. And the best way to get our arms around the idea of, of glory is to look at the Old Testament, the Hebrew term for glory, and the New Testament term for glory. The Old Testament term is the term kavoth, or you might see it spelled kavoth. Interesting term. It literally means heaviness, substance, or weight. I think I, I may have... Uh, Revealed to you before, one of the things that, that most surprised me in understanding things that are heavier than they look is uh, working with my father when I was a Cub Scout 
on the Pinewood Derby. Any of you men remember the Pinewood Derby? You take this little piece of balsa wood and you would shape it and carve it into the, the shape of the, the car that you wanted. And, um, and uh, it had to weigh a certain amount. It, let me say it this way. It couldn't weigh over a certain amount of ounces. Well, my father and I had, had carved this piece of balsa wood down from this block and put the axles in, put the wheels on, put graphite on the wheels. One of my, just my fondest memories of sitting at the table with my dad, we had painted it red and blue and put 43 on for Richard Petty. I was so excited to have this thing. I went to bed that night and got up the next morning and after school, we were gonna go to the Pinewood Derby uh, uh, track, which was just this big uh, hill, basically. You put it on, they drop the gate and race to the bottom. And my dad handed me my, my car, my wooden car that we had carved out the night before. And I remember reaching out and grabbing it, and he handed it to me and falling immediately to the table. It was substantially heavier than I thought and than it was the night before because my dad had turned it over, carved out some place in the bottom, and put some lead weights, completely legal, it was under the weight, to bring it up to the weight for competition. It was more substantial, heavier than it looked. That's the Hebrew word for glory. It's God is glorified. He's kavoth. He's bigger, heavier, stronger, more magnificent than you can ever imagine. To experience God's glory in the Old Testament is to be overwhelmed by His greatness. It's to reach your hand out to think you can hold the majesty of God and to have it slammed to the ground because of His weight. The New Testament word is doxa. You've heard of doxology, right? This has the idea of brilliant light. Light that can only be compared to the sun. Remember in Revelation 1, John said, I looked at the glorified Lord Jesus and he was like looking at the sun. It's just magnificent. It's brilliant. It's bright. It's overwhelming. You can't stare too long at it without, without going blind. Now, if I can stretch the analogy just a little bit, I've been told by physician friends that if you look at the, and you all know this, if you look at the sun even for a second and close your eyes, what do you see? You still see the sun. And I've been told by, by physicians who know much better than me that the brightness of the sun is so intense that it paralyzes the nerves on your retina, the retina nerve, and it can't release that image so fast. It so stuns, it's so bright, it stuns your eye. And even if you close it, it can't release it that fast. To see the glory of God is something like that. It's so brilliant and so magnificent. It's so majestic and so overwhelming that to see it is for the retina of your soul to be unable to let go of that magnificence. Let's have a Bible study. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles 29. If you're 
a student of First Chronicles, you know this is where David had taken up the offering for the temple, which the Lord had not allowed him to build, right? Because he was a man of bloodshed, but that task would be passed on to his son Solomon. Good. When First Chronicles 29, he receives this offering, overwhelming, overwhelming offering. And this is his response. Just listen to him. This is David wrestling with trying to articulate the majesty and the greatness and the glory and the magnificence of God. Verse 10, 1 Chronicles 29, 10. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you. Listen to him run out of language. Blessed are you, O Lord, God of Israel, our, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Do you just hear him running out of language to talk about the greatness of God? And at the centerpiece of that is the glory of God, the Theologians call this the, this the effulgencies of his character, the manifestations of his, of his personality. New Testament. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And let's start looking at how the glory of God that seems way out there and way up there begins to have an impact right where we live. Peter here in 1 Peter 4.11 is speaking about uh, spiritual gifts, uh, speaking gifts and serving gifts. But listen to what he says. Whoever speaks, whoever employs their gifts in the body of Christ is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. That's a lot of gravity. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Here it is. So that in all things, by our serving, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs, see if this sounds like David, the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Now, I, I wanted to take this from high level to shoe level on purpose by putting these, these passages back to back. David just explodes and says, you're just magnificent, magnificent. I can't believe the offering that we've received. I can't believe the sacrifice of the people. I can't believe how this temple is going to be made to show your glory to the nations. And Peter says, you know what? That glory is manifest when the people of God exercise spiritual gifts in serving one another. It's not just way out there and way up there. It's right in here. Revelation 1.6. You're welcome to try to keep up if you want. I'm going to move a little quicker. God has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In other words, this glory and dominion are often linked together. Glory is 
God's personality, that he's great and magnificent. Dominion is the exercise of that glory of being sovereign and in charge of his creation. Ephesians 3, 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Revelation 7, 12, saying amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. The angels cannot stop saying God be glorified. Now, before we go to these last couple of um, passages, I, I want to back up from that for, for just a second. Maybe the best way to understand God's glory is to go back just a few weeks when, I don't know if you were able to see part of the solar eclipse that was here in the Kansas City area. Several of us uh, trekked out and avoided clouds and avoided thunderstorms. Steve Cole was leading us around like a shepherd. And we finally found right at the time, just a few minutes before um, totality, is that what they called it? Totality. We found this place and we pulled over by some cornfields and looked up. And we were looking through the glasses and you could see the curvature and everything was there. And then totality came and you could look at it. And for a few minutes, you saw a hole in the sky with a ring around it. Think of glory like the sun's brilliance. And for a few minutes, we saw the effects of the glory of the sun, but we could actually look directly toward the sun with a big black thing over the front of it and stare at it. It's incredible. What I was shocked by, this was the second total eclipse I've seen in my life. The first one was I was in, I was in the first grade in Chattanooga, Tennessee. What I was shocked by was as the eclipse began to finish that the tiniest sliver of sun when it made its way around the shadow of the moon, the moon moved out in front of the sun, you were no longer able to look. Just the tiniest sliver. God's glory is always brilliant. It's always brilliant. Sin is what keeps us from seeing it, enjoying it, being transformed by it, understanding it. Was the sun any less glorious when the moon was in front of it? No. Just makes me ask, what is, what, what is it in my life that could be eclipsing the glory of our Savior? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. You had to know this verse was coming.
The comprehensive nature of a believer seeking to live out and live by the glory of God is nowhere summarized better than in 1 Corinthians 10.31 where Paul says, "Whether it's, it's actually almost humorous. He says, whether then you eat or drink, whether you are seeking nutrition or hydration, the most mundane things that we do all the time, whether you eat or drink, and then he has this, whatever you do, that's comprehensive. The most mundane and exhaustively everything you do, do all to what? The glory of God. Now, I think there's a why that could be asked by that, and it's Romans eleven thirty six. Just follow the chain here. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Just add this to your list. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give them up and to the south. Do not hold them back. Bring back my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. Whom I have formed, even who I have made. In other words, God created us. Think about this. He created us as receptors and reflectors of his greatness and his glory. So how do we get our arms around this? How can we possibly get our reach around what this is? Let me... Let me try to explain it a little bit and then we're going to go to a place that might be a little unexpected to look at the glory of God. Living for the glory of God means living because God is and makes a difference. Because God is and it makes a difference. It's living in the light of God, living in the, in the, in the revelation of God. It's living in such a way that God matters to everything. That's what it means to live to his glory so that he gets the credit or the glory or the, the magnificence for what we do. And that should put such, such a burden on our self-evaluation is do what I, does what I do really reflect God's glory, his goodness, his magnificence? Where do you see the glory of God most? Well, before we get to the actual expression, go to a passage that I think you're very familiar with, and I want to show you a parallel that frankly escaped me for a long time. Isaiah chapter 6. You know, one of the things that is important to do when you're studying a passage is to look for parallels things that are said one way and then said another way and, and how those relate to one another. You know this, in the year of King Isaiah's death, Isaiah 6, verse 1, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. One of the most magnificent visions in all of Scripture. I mean, Isaiah sees a vision of God, just just put yourself in his toga for a minute, okay? 
He sees what cannot be seen. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He was lofty. He was exalted. And the train of his robe was filling the temple. I was in England a few weeks ago and saw a picture of Princess Diana's wedding. I don't know if you remember any of this, but she had a ro- uh, the train of her robe, which was just magnificently flowing all the way down the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral. It was just covering a few steps. This was filling the temple, wrapped around. That's how magnificent. He has no language to even capture this. Seraphim, angels, stood above him, each having six wings. With two of the wings, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Now, I know you know the first part, but have you kept reading? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Parallel, the whole earth is full of his, what? Glory. We could spend a lot of time tracking that down. The heavens declare the glory of God. Listen, as believers, we don't worship the creation, but we see it as God's signature, his handiwork. Last week, I was in Wyoming chasing elk who eluded me. And uh, it's up on a mountain, six inches of fresh snow, watching a sunset against this white cascade of fresh snow a dozen miles back where there was no other person. And my only thought was, what a God. What a God. Think of the billions, I don't even know the word, the, the count, of things he's doing that no one ever sees for his own glory. Think of the depths of the sea that are so dark there's no light, creatures that have not yet been discovered that God has created so he can enjoy that show his handiwork, his glory. Think of how he does things that are so different than us. I mean, have you thought about your body? If you had invented, would have invented someone, would you have invented a person who stands on a bipod, two, two legs and intestines and digestive systems and endocrine system and a brain? and a heart that pumps and is fed by food that tastes good. I mean, who are you seeing that? David says, look, I look into the heavens and I see the glory of God. Parents, please, 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 you don't have to go very far from Kansas City. Drive out one night, get away from the city, away from what they call light pollution. Get your kids out. Say, lay down on your back on a clear night and look up. They all scream, God's glory. God's glory, though, cannot be erased here in Isaiah from his holiness. 
It has a moral dimension. Now, all of that takes us to John 17. I told you this is just going to be a little bit of a Bible study. We're going to have an outline here at the end, so just hang on. John 17, Jesus, the high priestly prayer. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Make much of me, the son, so that I, the son of God, can make much of you, the father. And then we've said this before, the the Lord's prayer is really in John 17. The disciples' prayer is in Matthew 6. The Lord could have never prayed what we call the Lord's prayer. Forgive us this day our transgressions, our sins. Jesus could have never prayed that. You and I could have never prayed this prayer where he says, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all to whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you sent. This is incredible. Only one person alive on the planet ever in history could have prayed this. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Listen, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What is he saying? As the second member of the Trinity, Jesus is saying, remember Philippians 2? That he set aside the demonstration, the execution, the use of some of his divine attributes, the emptied himself. What do we sing every Christmas, Aaron? Mild he lays his glories by. He's saying, I want my glories back. It's time. I've been faithful. I'll be faithful tomorrow on the cross. Glorify me now. I want to enjoy the pre-incarnation glory that you, the Father, and I shared with the Spirit before I became a man. Did he get it? The same John who wrote this in Revelation 1 says, remember this is John who's laying on his, on his breast and loving and caring for him at the Last Supper. That same John, when he saw Jesus glorified, fell in Revelation 1, fell on his face as a dead man. So what do we do to respond to that? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. You, as a Christian, have been bought with a price. Stop right there. What price, 1 Corinthians 6, 20, what price was paid for the souls and the redemption and the salvation of believers? The life of the Son of God. 
the execution of the God-man, the Lord Jesus. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, I don't think he's saying not in your mind, not in your sports, not. He's saying this shell, this tent that he tells the Second Corinthians about, this tent we live in, our existence that is lived on earth in this body, glorify God in your existence. In Isaiah, when the holiness of God fills the earth, the people see it and it's called glory. For you and me, when we glorify God in our bodies, holiness is what exudes from our existence. So let me give you now five points of application. I told you it was going to be a Bible study with some application. Number one, I want you to think about this. If this is all true and we're called to bring God glory, to bring him attention and to bring him, bring understanding of him about as, our, as the result of our lives. Number one, decisions in the mind should be submitted to God's glory. Submit, decisions in the mind should be submitted to God's glory. Let me ask you a couple questions. Is God omniscient? Does he know everything? Yes. Is God omnipresent? Is he everywhere? Yes. Does God know what you think? Psalm 139 says, yes, before a thought was on my mind, you knew it, O Lord. So it starts in the core of who we are. Our thinking should be controlled and regulated by the glory of God. In other words, do these thoughts, do these decisions in my mind that no one ever sees but me, Sometimes they see them after I've thought them, but in the very formulation of my decisions, in my mind, is the glory of God in play? Am I thinking about the glory of God and how I think about people and how I think about circumstances and how I make my decisions? Are my thoughts, in other words, submitted to the glory of God? You want to have a purified mind? Submit your thoughts to the glory of God. You want to have a disciplined mind? Submit your mind to the glory of God. By the way, all of these are going to be decisions. Decisions in the mind should be submitted to the glory of God. Does this bring glory and greatness and honor to God? Number two, decisions about the use of our bodies should be submitted to God's glory. Decisions about the use of our bodies should be submitted to God's glory. We just read it in 1 Corinthians 6. Glorify God in your bodies. Now, I know that we, we, the body does what the mind thinks, but think about how many things you do. Can I dare tread where no one ever goes? You understand that overeating and undereating is an issue of the glory of God? Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. You do that with your body. Whether or not you exercise, taking care of your tent, what you do with your 
hands, what you do with your eyes, what you listen to with your ears. I know it all goes into the mind to process, but the body is to be tamed by a God-glorifying attitude that comes from within toward the outside. Do we use our bodies in submission to God's glory? Number three, decisions about relationships should be submitted to God's glory. Decisions about relationships should be submitted to God's glory. These are the most immediate relationships you have, husbands and wives, children, parents, brothers and sisters, family beyond that, your church body and family. Do we relate to one another with the glory of God in mind? Does, how I, does what I say glorify God? Does how I speak glorify God? Does, do, do, I, do I gossip? Do I, do I slander? Do I not say what I should say? Do I speak the truth? And when I do, is it in love? Is, is the glory of God in mind in our relationships? Think about the relationships you have. Is, this is a little embarrassing to ask any of us. Does, does the glory of, has the glory of God swung into your mind one time today in how you related to someone you've met, ministered to or fellowshiped with or spoken to or had lunch with today? If the glory of God is supposed to be pervasive in all that we do, whatever you do, do to the glory of God, is the glory of God in our mind when we relate to one another? Let's move on before that gets too convicting. Number four, decisions about resources. That's, I would say, time and money. And by money, I mean everything you own. And time, all that you've been given. Decisions about our resources should be submitted to God's glory. Do you submit purchases to God's glory? Or does Amazon help you just go right around the glory of God to your, in, to your, uh, to your mailbox? Do you pray about it? Does this this purchase glorify God? Does this use of my time glorify God? Sitting in front of your computer. I'm not just talking about the bad things you you could look at. I'm, I'm talking about surfing YouTube and doing things that just are mindless wastes of time. That's a resource. And once time is spent, you can never, ever get it back. Is the glory of God in play? Is it in our minds when we're thinking about resources that have been given to us and allotted to us by God? Number five, track with me here. Decisions about decisions should be submitted to the glory of God. You understand what I mean by that? Do you... Do you know how to decide what you need to decide? And what I'm saying is, can you back up and say, before I decide any decision, does the glory of God have anything to do with this? Do you find a division between the secular and the sacred in your life? You find areas that are pretty well God-controlled and areas that are just me-controlled. 
Soli Deo Gloria says that everything we do, everything we eat, everything we drink, everything we say, every person we relate to is all under the direct reference to the simple question, does this most glorify God? That's a game changer, isn't it? That rocks your world. That changes everything. That influences everything. We exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else. How comprehensive is this? In every dimension of life as regulated by by God's word. Friends, let me just tell you, this is a, a convicting thought, but also a gracious one. God knows. He, think about even what we're about to do in a minute, the, the Lord's table. He knows that we forget about his glory. So he gives us reminders. The Lord's table is a reminder. Friends should be reminders. We should be a reminder ourselves to others to stop and say, where is God in this decision? That's probably the simplest way you can ask if you're glorifying God. Where is God? Where are God's regulations? Where is God's word in this decision? And to obliterate forever any distinction between secular and sacred, seeing everything is sacred and everything is to be done for the glory of God. Let me say it in a different way. You are living in a perpetual worship service where your service is always giving glory to God. Remember Deuteronomy 6? It's talking about discipleship, but I think the glory of God is in play here. Whether you're lying down, whether you're rising, whether you're working, whether you're resting, no matter what you are doing, you're always keeping the statutes of God in mind because holiness and obedience is always related to the glory of God. Isaiah said so in his great vision. Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of your glory. Make that connection. Glory. 